you know, we have so many people aging in uh, this yeah. society, and we also have a shortage of resources. Uh, you know, the uh, growth in entitlements uh, in the U.S. government, uh, like when they originally set up Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, they never really thought through just how many people would be consuming those programs, and they're starting to really weigh down uh, financially our federal government. So we need more companies and more people to try to take costs out of the healthcare system. Uh, even if it's small costs, it's all contributing. And so I think those companies should be supported in every way, shape or form. This episode features a conversation with Ken Londoner. He has established himself as an authority in the capital markets and capital architecture, as well as a prominent executive in the life sciences sector. Beginning his career as a research analyst at the prestigious J&W Seligman in New York, he rapidly advanced to a key position within the biotech industry during the 1990s. His expertise and leadership enabled him to oversee the management of $3.5 billion across mutual and pension funds along with a range of international assets. Driven by a deep commitment to advancing medical technology, Ken co-established and directed multiple companies in the life sciences domain to market prominence. Among them is Biosig Technologies Incorporated, which is listed on the NASDAQ as BSGM. By partnering with leading experts in electrophysiology, Biosig is dedicated to improve the outcomes of cardiac ablation procedures for arrhythmia treatment with its cutting-edge technological innovations. The firm leverages its specialized expertise in sophisticated biomedical signal processing and analysis, extending these capabilities to broader medical applications. In the rapidly evolving landscape of healthcare, the growing elderly population is driving up costs and creating a complex financial environment. This presents a unique challenge for the industry, but it also offers an opportunity for health tech startups to step in and make a difference. These innovative companies are poised to develop cost-reducing solutions and improve the quality of care, addressing the financial complexities in healthcare, including insurance, treatment cost, and the development of new treatments. For health tech startups to succeed, well, they must be creative problem solvers and manage their finances strategically. This will not only ensure the sustainability of their ventures, but also enable them to bring their transformative solutions to fruition. In this exciting and demanding environment, the future of healthcare lies in the hands of these innovative startups as they work to improve the lives of millions around the world. This is Favorable Environments, a podcast sponsored by USD Discovery District. And now, here's Ken Londoner. Born and raised in a suburb of New York, a bedroom community of New York City. Uh, grew up in a household of uh, working parents. Uh, you would call it solid middle class, perhaps lower middle class, whatever the case may be. Uh, always had an interest in investing from a young age. Parents uh, sponsored that. And, um, you know, in my in my young mind, I always thought I would go to Wall Street and ended up there. Um, and it took me a couple job hops to get what I considered to be the ideal job. But I was one of the lucky ones because I ended up in the right firm at the right time 
uh, with the right ambition. So it all kind of came together for me. Uh, the fir that firm was Seligman. Seligman uh, was a uh, old uh, money management firm. When I say old, going back to the 1800s and has a storied history. I was very young when I got that job. Uh, the firm had a lot of really senior uh, leaders, so there wasn't a lot of young people there, which is a perfect mix for me. And then the original digital boom started. Ba basically, I would mark 1990 is the beginning of the digital change in our world. Um, Nick Negroponte wrote a book called Being Digital in 1990, which we consumed. And Seligman ended up becoming one of the leading technology investors in the United States, principally based on semiconductors and networking computers, uh, cell phones, and then we migrated into all the other opportunities. And it's still going to this day, and it's remarkable. Um, so I was there for a little less than 10 years started as an analyst, moved into money management. And then uh, circa 1996, um, I started to see uh, the beginnings of what I thought was over-concentration, not just in our portfolios, but just the way the markets were. It's gotten much more extreme. But there was too much money going into tech, not enough money going into other areas. And I grew concerned that there would be a correction or something more severe. I try to get Seligman to consider uh, starting some for, form of hedging program to diversify and, and hedge risk. They wouldn't go for it. So I ended up leaving there and starting my own hedge fund uh, in late 96, early 97, which I ran through 9-11. And 9-11, as you noted, um, sort of caused me to change my mindset. I was at an age where I'd done well. I had some uh, discretionary investment monies. Uh, so I set up a family office, uh, uh, left the hedge fund, gave the money back after 9-11 and started trying to find a way to, um, you know, invest as a principal as opposed to being paid to invest. And really the only boss I had was myself and my wife and uh, did that for a number of years and um, started to build up a desire and a, a uh, uh, ability to uh, invest and start a company. And uh, I'd done that a couple of times, uh, but Biosig came along as an idea. Uh, a lot of ideas crossed my path and I had certain criteria I was looking for. Uh, I needed to see growth on a long-term basis, needed to see the opening, uh, the intellectual property of opening as well. And um, anyhow, Biosig at, at the time appealed to me in that regard. And um, here I am 15 years later. Uh, running, running the business, Mr. Londoner. You know, you talk about that uh, transition from kind of mutual funds. I'm uh, the Seligman to that hedge fund. A uh, couple questions: What what allowed you to see or identify that the market was going to shift? Because obviously, you absolutely ended up being very, very correct, right? I think it's easy. Um, you know, now maybe it isn't so easy, but. When uh, it, it boils down to valuations and it boils down to um, when nobody knows something's going on is the time to get involved. Uh, when everybody knows something's going on, valuations start to reflect that. And then when it becomes feverish or exuberant is usually when there'll be a change. And the thing that you can't see are what are the major catalysts to create that change. But I always view it as a cycle. Uh, sometimes there are super cycles. I was talking earlier this morning about when I first started to believe China's real estate 
uh, uh, investment area was getting overheated. That was over 15 years ago. And it, it stayed overheated for a very long time. Um, and now it's basically doing what we thought it would do years back. Uh, in the United States, because we are such a open economy and, and, and stand for investment flows pretty freely, um, you can see where things get overdone and over-concentrated, and then um, you measure valuation against that, and that's where you start to see things starting to change. So the mutual fund business uh, was a business where fees were coming down, um, assets weren't growing that dramatically, and there was no ability to protect from corrections or, or crashes. So you had to be fully invested all the time. And if you weren't, basically, you'd either lose your job or they'd take the money away from you. And that just didn't make a lot of sense to me, especially during a period where assets were getting hyper overvalued. And that overvaluation went right up until the peak of 2000. And then if for those that remember, in 2000, the NASDAQ was down 76%, which is kind of a crash. And it was yeah. br it was brutal. <laughs> It was, brutal, it was brutal for everybody. And now, now you know, I don't know. Um, you see, um, uh, what I don't care for is that seven or eight companies represent 30, 40, 50% of the S&P 500. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think that there is so much opportunity in the emerging growth companies. Our company is a good example where the underlying fundamentals are good and strong and getting better and the asset value is there, yet the public market valuation is lower than what it should be because of the post-pandemic scenario, you know, the post-pandemic uh, aura, and then, you know, everybody's cramming money into eight or nine names, and nobody wants to look at tomorrow's innovators. So I think that'll ultimately end up correcting itself. It always does. But, you know, the opportunity I see is in investments south of, let's say, $2 billion in public market value. You know, uh, I think in one of your podcasts, I, there was a quote that really stood out to me. Where can I go where there's most assured growth, right? And I think that was one of the opportunities as you saw the technology behind what is now Biosig. Uh, what was that? What was that like when you were first introduced? And, and how did you, how did you, how long did it take you to evaluate? And what was your process to kind of calculate whether or not this was something you wanted to pursue? So it's Seligman, Medical technology was one of those categories that was a consistent area we searched for successful potential investments, and we had a number of them that did beyond well. And so I had that as a basis to, to think about. Uh, cardiology has been an area of medicine that's done well with innovation and uh, public companies. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the process itself was to understand, first and foremost, what is the unmet need? What is the problem that the scientists and the technologists were telling me they could solve? Was it big enough? Was it uh, populated with other people trying to solve the problem? Did the big companies have any uh, intellectual claims in terms of uh, patents on that opportunity? And then, you know, the question of how long would it take? How much would it cost? And what could be yielded from all that hard work? And so, uh, I did about a year's worth of analysis. Uh, it started with patent searching, searching for the estates and searching for the prior art to see if there was any room for innovation. And that was the part that surprised me the most. And doing thorough and competent searching, 
I saw an open opportunity, which is kind of rare uh, in today's day and age, you know, to think about where there hasn't been uh, true innovation, it's, it's getting harder and harder to find. Uh, in medicine, it's even harder because there's just so much money and so much demand to improve human health and extend human life that, you know, there's just a lot of capital that seeks that out. So the fact that I could establish uh, an intellectual property position in a double-digit secular growth market, that was what appealed to me. Also, the other thing is, um, in medicine, the big analysis is what is it going to cost to get FDA approval? How much is that? And how risky is that? And with uh, Biosig's proprietary platform, which is a computer platform to assess cardiovascular uh, uh, atrial fibrillation diagnosis and treatment, um, it's it's what's called the 510K FDA approval, which is shorter duration, lower cost, uh, uh, limited clinical uh, validation versus drugs. Because to be an entrepreneur in medicine, if you're going to do it in the drug world, you have to have a very large checkbook. And if you're doing it in the device area, you still need a checkbook, but it doesn't have to be the same size. So when, when I understood it to be a class two medical device, which had limited risk to the patient, um, and I, I knew there was a good chance of getting through FDA, uh, that kind of was suitable. That made sense to me. And and we it played out that way. Um, we got through the FDA from starting the company through FDA was about nine years, which is within the time timeline that is expected. Would you say was there a significant learning curve for you coming from you know this this financial world uh, into the biotech that you felt you had to make up and uh, and exceed potentially your peers just to be able to get to a level set? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I would say uh, the steepest learning curve was in manufacturing. Um, that was an area I, ha I had exposure to through uh, portfolio investments, but to actually know the ins and outs and nuances of manufacturing, um, very painful. Um, it took years to be able to get to a stable, steady state to be able to supply the market with the type of product we've put together. I think any entrepreneur, venture capitalist, um, risk taker, if they're going to make a product, they have to understand manufacturing. And if you're going to outsource it, it, it's even more complicated because if you don't have supply and there's demand, you, you're out of business. And I would say that was the steepest learning curve. Um, many, many steep learning curves, you know, um, product development, um, intellectual property, clinical trials. Uh, it's all very steep learning curves, but the key is to surround yourself with good people and have a mission uh, that people can rally behind. Uh, we certainly have that um, in our world of uh, irregular heartbeats. There's still not a, a total solution in the market. There's still room for improvement. And there are a lot of people passionate to try to improve the quality of care because it's a global market. Many of us know people that suffer from this disease and it is the type of disease that will cause uh, harm in your life if it's not fixed. So to fix it uh, better, faster, and save the healthcare system's money while doing so is the type of mission that can draw talented people into uh, this kind of um, uh, struggle. And it is, uh, it is very difficult. I'll tell you, the area that was the steepest learning curve is how to operate post-pandemic. 
Uh, nobody has a playbook for that. Um, there are distortions and dislocations all over the place, from government to manufacturing, supply chain, um, people working from home, you name it. It's it's become even more complicated. I think um, the fact that we're almost 15 years of age gives us staying power, but there are a lot of these emerging medical technology businesses that are really having trouble right now. Would you say, does that impact the the sales cycle and how uh, your clients or cus- potential customers are adopting technology? Yes, very much so. And I will credit our team, uh, in particular our commercial team, for really uh, living up to the moment of challenge because the way we were coming to market was to sell our hardware and software in a capital sale, which is always difficult. Uh, but in a post-pandemic uh, landscape, to your uh, question, uh, we were seeing delays, uh, significant delays in decision-making because the hospitals are under a lot of um, fiscal stress. So we uh, adjusted and adapted our model to meet the needs of what we think will be the current environment, and we see that environment continuing. So uh, we changed our uh, business model to a subscription SaaS-based model. Um, We innovated new software that made the uh, technology more um, valuable. So we have demonstrated the ability to take about 20 minutes out of the time of the procedure, which we calculate to save them about $800 per case, which is very valuable to the hospitals. And then based on the innovation of our uh, software, we were able to uh, discover an existing uh, insurance reimbursement code that fit with our software so we could help the hospital actually make money on every procedure. So that combination of new business model, new software, and reimbursement code is a formula that will allow us to survive this market environment because this market environment, in my view, is kind of extreme. And I don't think it'll last very long because the aging of the population will will continue to put pressures on government and local uh, municipalities to provide care for their aging populations. And so we have a value proposition that is vetted, proven, and um, on the commercial side, you know, uh, we think this formula will give us a little bit more um, lift in our activity. Without that, we would we would have a hard time. And that, that flexibility to scale and adjust uh, on the fly. I mean, I, again, I think the pandemic changed so many of us uh, in terms of perspective, but the business environment, uh, you know, I think we're still seeing some of the repercussions and having to, to adjust. So kudos to you and your team for doing that. And uh, you kind of actually answered, uh, you know, on the value prop side, uh, but maybe putting it a little more simple, what what does the world need to know about Biosig? Well, we've proven that we have uh, a computerized solution that can aid the physicians in treating a very complicated uh, condition called atrial fibrillation. There is a immense amount of technology that has come into this field to enable the well-trained physicians to go inside the heart and terminate the irregular heartbeat. And if they do it correctly, uh, the patient is cured of this uh, disease, which is a really, it's a, it's a disease that causes a, a big downgrade in quality of life. So uh, the fact that um, all this innovation has come in over the last 30 years, in terms of understanding the heart signals 
that help them optimize the therapy. We have basically carved out a position where we believe our signals are of value and we've done a lot of clinical work and um, we demonstrated through the use of our system uh, that we are adding value. And now our goal is to get that system into as many hands as possible. Um, so we've done many clinical trials. Currently, uh, we have customers uh, throughout the country, although a, a small customer base relative to what we would like, but Cleveland Clinic uses the system and has purchased the technology. Mayo Clinic has uses the system and has purchased the technology. And HCA Healthcare, which is the largest for-profit publicly traded hospital chain, also uses and has paid for our technology. And now our goal is to create more uh uh, more customers. Who would be uh, Biosig's ideal client prospect? Is there a, a, a healthcare system size or is there a, a focus that you look at first when you're targeting some of these prospects? Yeah, that's changed over the years. You know, um, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, where we are in our life cycle is we're looking for ease of adoption and uh, where we can really help and make an impact. So that's changed, right? Pre-pandemic, those were the large cities uh, in uh, states where it was easier to get into, like Florida, Texas, um, where we spent the early part of our commercial uh, limited market release time. And uh, now we've adjusted uh, because of this formula I, I highlighted a, a few moments ago. Uh, we're in places that aren't sort of obvious. Um, we're in secondary markets um, where it's a little bit easier for us to get through because to get an initial install base is our priority. And uh, what we found is the larger uh, the city and the larger the hospital system, the longer it takes. And it's not to say we don't have the patience to endure the, the uh, requirements to get in, but for our uh, future, it's better if we can get in quicker, faster, demonstrate more and more value through all the use and data um, and then expand from there. So uh, we do have the brand name adopters. Uh, we're now looking to get in where people feel a great uh, benefit and need. Uh, is there an internal strategy uh, for uh, for led by or created by the, the BioSigs uh, leadership team in terms of what happens next with the company? So uh, we have a very talented, decent-sized uh, engineering team based in Los Angeles. Um, they've done a fantastic job over the last few years. Uh, since uh, we uh, attracted our commercial team who came from a firm called St. Jude Medical, uh, they joined about a year and a half ago. We've cranked out two versions of software. And those two versions were basically making our core innovation, which is signal clarity, signal quality, more active in a surgical case. It's really hard to understand that if you're not doing the surgeries, but uh, we were helping physicians see information they'd never seen before, but we weren't applying it to their workflow as well as we could have. So with the new team that came in, we innovated new software and we have uh, more software to come. So when you change your business model from a hardware induced sale, uh, like you would sell a Harley Davidson, Harley-Davidson, once they sell you the bike, they may sell you motor clothes, they may sell you, uh, you know, financial services or other things to get a residual on that bike. Um, but we changed our model to say we're going to um, create more and more software 
on the hardware and continuously bring value to them year in year out and that's our that's our what our company looks like so our we just launched our new software which we call version 7 uh that's going into the market now uh that that is the one that carries reimbursement and we're going to build on that uh version 8 software we'll probably launch sometime next year which will have additional value and additional features uh in the in the technology that you know help the physician uh do things that they can't currently do and so we will uh, carve out a market position and keep bringing new software and then as far as other products go right now our sole focus is on our current uh technology pure ep we think there's a long list of things we can do with the platform and um you know if you look at some of the other platforms in our industry they've been following this model for years uh johnson and johnson has a cardiac mapping system and i would say every 18 months or thereabouts they're rolling out new software and they have tools uh you know the tools business is a lucrative business but we don't see ourselves entering the tools business because we go head to head versus j and j and no small company should be thinking about going head to head versus a company like that there's just no way you can really succeed we do see ourselves as complementary to what the leaders are doing. We're adding value where they're not focused on that value. And we believe there's enough of a, a market for us so we can generate the returns we need to generate. You know, you, you took an interesting uh, approach at Capital. Um, and I know you've you've talked at length, but could you share with us maybe, I, I guess, from your perspective, coming uh, with your background and experience, uh, what that process was like and how it was to communicate to your partners and your other shareholders uh, initially. Uh, how, how was that that process outlined and, and uh, when was it identified in the pro- as you kind of evaluated the project? Yeah, that's a very long uh, topic to discuss. I would say uh, that's why we're here uh, for 15 years because we took a unique approach to uh, raising capital. I don't think very many people could or, or would do it. And I, I, I don't know if um, I'm constantly second guessing uh, the way we've done things only to say, was it the right thing? You're always asking yourself that question. But if you want to build a medical device business, um, there are a couple roads you can go down if you're a brand new entrepreneur. Um, you can do what are what is called friends and family and get enough capital to get started. But then you have to turn somewhere. And if you can't write the checks yourself, which most people cannot do, your next step is to turn to the venture capital community. And that community is stressed out right now. There's a lot of pain and there's a lot of stress in that community. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. I think there's going to be years of reconciliation for all the money that got poured into the venture community, not just in medical technology, but all areas. And until that clears itself out, um, which usually, like I said, takes years, uh, gets harder and harder to do. Uh, we decided in the early days that we would not go down the venture capital path. So that was a conscientious decision from day one. And the reason for that decision is simply having been in the venture community myself. Um, I knew that the venture community had a certain uh, sort of timeline where you needed to hit major success inflection points Otherwise, it wasn't going to work. And what ends up happening is management's turnover, ownership turns over, everybody gets 
sort of crammed down in the capital table and it, it turns into a very unpleasant experience. So um, I knew it would take us a while uh, to find our success and hit our bigger milestones like FDA approval, launching the product, getting customers, et cetera. I figured it would take 10 years and it did. It took at least 10, you know, it was nine to FDA. And then we ran into the pandemic, which distorted everything. But um, we used what was called the public venture model where we raised private money. We stayed private until uh, we went onto the NASDAQ, which was 2018. Um, and once we got onto the NASDAQ, we started using the public markets to fund the company. Now, the public markets have been very unfavorable for small companies, but small companies still have access to capital if you're public. If you're private and your venture capitalists don't have any money or don't want to put any more money into the project, then what are you going to do? Um, so you know, being public, I still think, has value. Uh, the public markets have been really challenging post-pandemic. Um, I've seen a lot of cycles in my career, and uh, I think the cycles will continue to be there. Uh, I'm looking forward to the next cycle uh, because right now I feel like we're sort of in the middle of nowhere land. Uh, interest rates are uh, high and, and potentially going higher. It's a very unfriendly environment for emerging growth innovative type companies, but it, you know, rates can only stay high for so long before you see the uh, weight of those high rates. And then you go into a cycle where rates start getting cut, capital starts loosening up. And there is, from what I read, about five and a half trillion of cash sitting on the sidelines and a lot of really astute people who say something to the effect of, I'm staying on the sidelines. Um, and they stay on the sidelines for reasons I'm not quite sure I understand, because right now the risk reward is pretty favorable towards taking risk uh, because valuations have come down a lot for uh, emerging uh, uh, public companies. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to look through uh, what, what happened last year and uh, to some extent this year and find value. Uh, and that'll, that'll mark the bottom in the uh, next up cycle. And so these small companies, those are your choices, public or private, um, you know, and if there's another choice, I'm not sure what it is. Sir, can you maybe speak to uh, some of the requirements and the process that it took to, to be able to take uh, Biosig public? There's a lot of criteria. First of all, on the uh, more technical side, you need to have audited financials. Um, uh, you need to uh, you need to comply with certain industry standards. You need to have great lawyers, and you need to have a business at a stage where there's a reason to be public, because uh, investors just aren't that friendly these days. So uh, our reasoning for Biosig was we were getting FDA approval. We were going to need money to manufacture the product, grow a commercial footprint, and uh, push the technology into the market and harvest the revenues and ultimately get towards cash flow break even. So for us, those were the underlying reasonings. We also needed money to file patents. We now have, uh, I think, north of 70 patents and um, also to expand uh, you know, the technology. So we created more product to make us more relevant in the market. That was the reason for being public. And again, the trigger for us was uh, FDA approval. So if you're going to uh, go public, you have to have a management team. Uh, uh, they have to be of quality that would attract public investment. You have to have a board of directors. 
Uh, that board needs to be what they call independent. Yeah, that means the board can't be your best friend, your brother-in-law, you know, your college roommate, uh, your former business partner. It has to be folks that really don't know you because the public's going to expect them to govern the affairs of the company in an uh, authentic way. And then lastly, uh, the board members, uh, you need to have three committees. One is the audit committee, one is the compensation committee, and one is the governance committee. And all the chair of those committees have to be independent as defined by, I believe, the SEC. And once you have all that in place, then you uh, traditionally need to find an underwriter. You need to find a broker-dealer who's willing to raise capital for you to meet the minimum requirements that either NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange uh, mandate, which is um, you need to have 300 shareholders of record. You need to have at least 5 million of shareholder equity. And um, I think that there, I think that's it. Um, there may be one other requirement I'm forgetting. So that's a lot. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's it rolls off my tongue because I've been through it multiple times. <laughs> For a new person, I think it sounds daunting. It's doable. You know, it's definitely doable. You need experts around you. If you don't have the expertise yourself, you better have expertise around you. And uh, there are consultants and others that can help. Um, so it's doable. I think what's been uh, just again based on my own research and listening to some of your previous conversations, what's been impressive to me is I think there's there's a a theme of uh, being mission driven, right? And in your conversations, and obviously very strategic as the the process you just outlined for us uh, on on taking your company public. Uh, what would you consider? I think are, are the most important elements when you're designing a company or putting a company together like Biosig? Um, for me, and it, maybe it's my personal preference, it's growth. It's solving an unmet need. Uh, it's understanding the competitive landscape. The more competition, the, the harder a time you're going to have. Uh, it's being able to attract uh, quality management. And what does quality management mean? In my uh, definition, it's people with experience, who have the ability to work within a smaller organization where there's less resources and where, you know, you really have to work your tail off to be successful. So it usually attracts um, somebody that has grit and determination, persistence. Um, a lot of times, if you're getting people with experience out of large companies, the, the big transition struggle you have with them is, uh, they're not used to being in small companies and, and small companies, it's very different. Uh, it's not better. It's not worse. Uh, it's different. And you have to be willing to put up with the differences. It's not for everybody. You know, it's definitely not for everybody. It doesn't mean it's not rewarding. It's just the, the reason the mission uh, base is important is because there's some tough days, just like even in a big business. You know, if you're running a big business and COVID hits, yeah, you may have a real struggle. And it's hard for the leaders there. I do like look at the auto industry. They're they're dealing with a uh, you know union walkout. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Um, but you know you you have to have a mission because if it's just a business that nobody really cares that much about, how are you going to get commitment and buy-in from anybody? Um, you know, it's not to say making cars is not a good thing to do. Obviously, important, critical. But is it really something you can get that passionate about? Elon Musk has been able to create that around uh, Tesla. But is Ford Motor able to do it? They have some great product, by the way. 
But like, how do they sustain that commitment? I'm not sure they can, which is why they have some of the labor challenges they have. But in a smaller organization, I believe it's easier to be able to get this type of buy-in, this type of commitment. Uh, in a, an environment like South Dakota and specifically the USD Discovery District, could you help un, help us understand what in, what are important elements to draw companies such as a biosig to certain areas, or do companies typically go? And you're obviously unique in the sense, but uh, we've heard time and time again uh, that some of these companies are going where these uh, the private equity tells them to go. Right? They want them to be in their own backyard, or they want them to be close to certain resources. Uh, but what what resources are important to companies that are, I would say, at your stage of commercialization? Um, it's a very good question. I think there's a lot of work out there you can look at. Um, there's there's a very large concentration in 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 the digital economy around San Francisco, Boston, and New York. Um, why is that? It's university. It's uh, the uh, ability to have uh, a younger community of professionals that are capable of doing a variety of different jobs inside of these companies. And that tends to be where all of the capital resides. And uh, there are a number of people I know that talk about how there needs to be a dispersion of capital and a dispersion of, of jobs in order to continue to have the uh, economy grow. It's it, And look at what's happening. There's been a pullback in a lot of things. So San Francisco and New York are perceived to be uh, struggling right now where uh, jobs have migrated uh, based on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, and and people are now working remotely. But uh, I think capital is important. So having a hub of investment is critical. Uh, that investment has to come from somewhere. Uh, so in you know Boston, there's a lot of money. In New York, there's a lot of money. San Francisco, there's a lot of money, and I think it starts with the access to resources. Um, other parts of the, uh, the United States don't seem to have a, it's not just the money, it's the knowledge of the money. It's the accumulated understanding of what the money should be doing and how the money works with, uh, you know, managements to build value. Um, I think that's where, where it's centered, if you were to ask me. Yeah, that I really appreciate that insight. Um, you know, you touched on a, a few key themes that we've heard through multiple conversations. Uh, just that partnership with the university, a lot of technology is birthed in research, university research, but also access to uh, workforce or potential future workforce and then capital. Um, I really like your your comment, knowledge of the money, because I again, I think it, it there's a difference between throwing money at a problem versus knowing how to strategically solve a problem using multiple resources. So uh, certainly appreciate that that insight. Um, you know, I think we're we're kind of wrapping up here, and I, I just want to be again uh, very sensitive to your time and 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 thankful. But if you could kind of leave us with uh, a few nuggets of of your personal wisdom, uh, one question I have, uh, uh, one of the final questions I have is, uh, what role has mentorship played in your career, and who who would you identify as you know maybe a, a major source of mentorship in as you've gone throughout this journey? No, I think mentorship's critical. Um, I've had so many, I can't even note them all. Uh, my first boss uh, taught me a lot of what I had to know in terms of the early days and 
was critical in in me making my way in the world. So having somebody early is so important because there's so many questions and so many unknowns in a young person's mind. So uh, getting a mentor first and foremost is critical. Making sure that mentor is the right one, but not not just one. You need you need many. Um, and you know, I I continue to look for mentors. You know, um, continue to look for folks that have knowledge and skill that can lend towards solving problems because uh, that's the difference between somebody who is successful or not. None of us have all the answers. And, um, you know, if there's mentorship in and around uh, your neck of the woods and there's a program that sustains that, I think that's really healthy. And I think that's really helpful. So I think it's, I think it's totally critical. And, you know, for Biosig, we started an internship program in 2015, and we do hire uh, our interns. We try to find young, talented people on different college campuses that we think can can help us in our business. And so that's a, sort of a, a, a some form of mentorship, you know, internships, externships, uh, apprenticeships, all very important. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh what what would you say or what would you like the world to know about uh, Ken Londoner? Me, tireless yes, uh, entrepreneur, uh, love love what I do. Uh, somebody's got to do this work, and there's got to be more people who are working on behalf of the American public, uh, the healthcare system, um, trying to fix problems. Uh, you know, we have so many people aging in uh, this yep. society, and we also have a shortage of resources. Uh, you know, the uh, growth in entitlements uh, in the U.S. government, uh, like when they originally set up Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, they never really thought through just how many people would be consuming those programs. And they're starting to really weigh down uh, financially our federal government. So we need more companies and more people to try to take costs out of the healthcare system, uh, even if it's small costs, it's all contributing. And so I think those companies should be supported in every way, shape, or form, uh, because if you think about the cost curves heading at us, uh, the Milken Institute, Michael Milken's organization, which I encourage everybody to go look at the website, they do an amazing job forecasting what's heading at the U.S. Uh, over the next uh, 30 years. If you think about the rising age of population and the diseases and the conditions that the aging population carry, you start with Alzheimer's. I think Milken predicts that Alzheimer's will cost the U.S. taxpayer $1.8 trillion by 2050. Okay, so that's 24, five, six years from now, whatever. That's a lot of money. That's just one condition. You go down the list, cardiology, diabetes, neuro, neuro diseases, um, the numbers grow extraordinarily large. So we need solutions. Uh, drugs are solutions potentially, but they're very expensive. So I'm a big device uh, advocate and a big technology advocate because while it does take money to create these type of um, uh, you know platforms, uh, they can take cost out of the system and they deserve uh, support uh, because we have to we have to uh, face this challenge. We have to meet these needs, and um, very important that we do that successfully. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Mr. Ken Londoner. This podcast is sponsored by the University of South Dakota Discovery District. The USD Discovery District is a newly established research park 
located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and is committed to offering cutting-edge life science facilities to companies engaged in advancing life science, biotechnology research, and innovation. For more information, please visit usddiscovery.com. If you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving this a five-star review. It would help us greatly. Thank you.